And uh, I might get some pushback on this, but I think Vince Lombardi might be one of the greatest football coaches of all time. Could be. Ah, oh, there's a Packer fan right there, right? No? But it's true, right? It's true. No doubt Mike Ditka was good. No doubt uh, uh, Bear Bryant was good. But uh, Lombardi was, uh, was really incredible. And I don't know Vince Lombardi's uh, theology. I know he believed in God. But I don't know how much God fit into his decision-making and his, uh, his coaching lifestyle. He was somewhat brutal of a coach, and he demanded a lot from his players. Uh, he wrote a book, What It Takes to Be Number One. And I always uh, like reading other books, especially some sports books, but I wanted to see if the principles in the book were biblical. We should always read things in light of God's Word and what God's Word tells us. Truth is truth. And whether he knew the biblical uh, um, basis for what he wrote in the book, I found nine principles that he has in the book and all nine of these principles are biblical principles. So the last chapter, he kind of has a summary of the, uh, of the book. And uh, here's what he says. I might, it might be on the screen. Winning is not a sometime thing. It's an all-the-time thing, which shows commitment. You don't win once in a while. You don't do right things right once in a while, you do them right all the time. Winning is a habit. We're going to be strong Christians, we have to develop good habits. Unfortunately, so is losing. There is no room for second place. There's only one place in my game, and that's first place. I have finished second twice in my time at Green Bay, and I don't ever want to finish second again. There is a second-place bowl game, but it is a game for losers. It is and always has been an American zeal to be first in anything we do and to win and to win and to win. That's passion. Every time in a football player goes to ply his trade, he's got to play from the ground up, from the soles of his feet right up to his head. Every inch of him has to play. Some guys play with their heads. That's okay. You've got to be smart to be number one in any business. But more importantly, you've got to play with your heart with every fiber of your body. If you're lucky enough to find a guy with a lot of head and a lot of heart, that's mental toughness. He's never going to come off the field second. Running a football team is no different than running any other kind of an organization, an army, a political party, or a business. The principles are the same. The object is to win, to beat the other guy, which shows results. Maybe that sound 
hard and, or cruel. I don't think it is. It is a reality of life that men are competitive. And the most competitive games draw the most competitive men. That's why they are there, to compete. The object is to win fairly, squarely, by the rules, but to win. And that's truth. And in truth, I've never known a man worth his salt who in the long run, deep down in his heart, didn't appreciate the grind, the discipline, and that is discipline. There is something in good men that really yearns for discipline in the harsh reality of head-to-head combat. I don't say these things because I believe in the brute nature of man or that men must be brutalized to be combative. I believe in God. There's faith. And I believe in human decency. But I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, his greatest fulfillment to all he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle victorious. Man, that's the Christian life. All those principles reveal the Christian life. The Christian life is not for sissies. It's not for quitters. It's a hard road. It's a difficult road. It's an eternal road. But it's a glorious road where we are the tools in the hands of God to accomplish his work in this world. So, Father, as we... Look at Acts chapter 13 today. Fill this place. Fill this place with your presence. Fill this place with your spirit. Help us, Father, to see what you're doing around us. Put me in the game, coach. We want to be in the game. At Anchor Church, Lord, we want to fight the fight, run the race, finish the course. We want to follow the rules. We want to play by your word, your truth. We acknowledge we need you. We pray for the person on the right. We pray for the person on the left that, Lord, you would use this message to speak to them. Raise up laborers, Lord. The fields are white unto harvest. The laborers are few. Today, Lord, help your people to commit again to running that race. Whatever gifts and abilities you've given to them, Help them to fan those into flames. Help them to pursue you and where you're working. And whatever the cost, help them to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 13 today. You know, I love our pastor. One one of the things that kept me coming here was his uh, just going right through the scriptures. 
Uh, we love the Bible. I love the Bible, and I uh, hate to say it nowadays, it's hard to find people out there that are preaching the text. What does the Bible say? That's why I love them. That's why uh, I continued to come. That's why I'm here, because it's the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like a hammer. It's like a mirror, and it changes us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So as we read God's Word and study God's Word and preach God's Word and live out God's Word, it'll be beneficial to us. You know, Charles Spurgeon, that great old-time preacher, uh, some pastor came to his service one day and said, Pastor uh, Spurgeon, um, how come people don't get saved every week in my church? And he said, well, do you expect people to get saved every week? And he said, well, no. And he said, well, that's why. <laughs> right? Do we expect God to move? Do we expect God to work? Are you open to God working in you? Are you willing, if God speaks to you about something, are you willing to obey are you willing to do it? Are you willing to get in the game? Are you willing to run the race? Are you willing to fight the good fight? Are you willing? That's half the battle. Willing and obedient. God must love ordinary people. He sure made a lot of them. <laughs> That's us. He chooses the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. So, if you're a foolish person, if you're a weak person, uh, you know, if you're one of those mighty ones, then well, maybe not so much, but God chooses the foolish things in the world to confound the wise, and so he includes all of us. You know, Jim Valvano said we should laugh every day, we should think every day, we should cry every day. We should be thinking, laughing, crying people. We should be passionate people. You know, I heard of a pastor who was selling his horse. My wife loves horses. And uh, the pastor was selling his horse. And he had trained his horse that when he said, hallelujah, the horse would go. And when he would say, praise the Lord, the horse would stop. So another pastor came along and said, I'm thinking of buying your horse. And he said, can I take him for a ride? And the pastor said, sure, you have to say hallelujah to get him to go and praise the Lord to get him to stop. So he's kicking the horse and the horse isn't moving and finally he remembers, he says hallelujah and the horse starts trotting. And he said, oh, this is great, hallelujah. And the horse starts picking up a little faster. And, oh, man, this is awesome, man. I'm feeling it. Hallelujah. Now the horse is running, full speed running, and he doesn't really know how to turn him and all that. It's all new to him. And he sees up ahead a big ravine, a big cliff. He knows it's there. And he's trying to pull back on the reins, and he's trying to get the horse to stop, and he's getting closer and closer, and finally he realizes the words to stop the horse are, praise the Lord. And he says, praise the Lord, and the horse goes, screeches right up to the end of the cliff. Oh, he wipes his brow and says, hallelujah. 
<laughs> Say a little laughter, right? We should laugh every day. We should cry every day. We should think every day. We should people that are alive. God is at work around us. He's working to this very day. And so today we're going to take a look at a missionary's journey. Did you know we're all missionaries? You're a missionary. A missionary is simply one who's sent. You and I have been sent by God. And so if we think of missionaries, uh, did you know that the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, en theos, enthusiasm, en theos, which means in God. When you are in God, you can be and will be enthusiastic. And so as we look at Paul and his friends, we see that they were enthusiastic believers. Now, I can't remember where Pastor Ryan left off, but we're going to do as much as we can the whole chapter, and I think he already covered verses 1 to um, whatever, whatever in there, but we're going to review some of that. And I notice in verse chapter 13, if you have your Bible, you can open it or turn it on, whatever fits you. There were, in the, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now notice verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, when did the Holy Spirit say it? While they were worshiping the Lord, while they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now I wonder how they, he did that. Did he say it out loud? Wouldn't it be great if we were here and got, the Holy Spirit just spoke out loud? It would make it so much simpler. Otherwise, I tried to discern, is that what the God said? Did he really say that to me? Am I just making that up? Am I just thinking that? Am I imagining that? They seemed to be really hearing. He really seemed to speak, but I don't know what really happened. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So there is a motive that drives us. Why are you even here in church today? Why do you do what you do? Is it just because you have fire insurance? That you're just glad you're escaping the future of, of hell? And so you have fire insurance and now you lift the rest of your life just for yourself? So you're sealed, you're okay, but ah, this is my life and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. They were worshiping the Lord. There was work for them to do. And the word worshiping is derived from a word that carries the idea of public service. Conducted at one's own expense. They weren't worried about getting paid for it. It was public service conducted at one's own expense. The elders of Antioch were not in it for the money. 
Theirs was sacrificial service as well as spiritual service. They were fasting. They were giving up things that satisfy themselves. They were serious about the Lord's work. They were committed to the Lord's work. They were passionate about the Lord's work. They had mental discipline. All those nine principles that, uh, that Vince Lombardi said in his book. They were sincere. They were spiritual. So it tells me that in a mission, as missionaries, that at first we have to be the right people. If you want to be used by God, God spoke to them while they were worshiping, while they were fasting. God is not going to speak to you when you're living in sin. God is not going to call you to his work when you're living for the world, when you're being followed, following the devil. God will begin to speak to you as you're worshiping him, as you're fasting, as you're being serious about the Lord's work. Many are called, few are chosen. I don't believe that means salvation, but I think God speaks to us and he's looking for the right kind of a person. I think later in this chapter, it talks about David. He raised up David, verse 22, and he said, I have raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will... Do all my will when he has time. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that, does it? Who will do my will, period. He is open, he's worshiping, he's praying, he's fasting, he's seeking, he's living for God. And so we have to be the right person. Notice what he said in verse 26. And he made from one man, oh, this is Acts 17, verse 26. He made from one man, one nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now think about this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their, med- of their dwelling place that they should seek God. So, that verse tells us that God determined that you were going to be born at this time in history. Do you ever wonder what's the best time of history you would live in, would like to live in? You know, I, think, I think of it, but I think these are the greatest times in history to live in. This is like, like I believe in Bible prophecy. I believe in the end times. I'm a pre-tribulation believer of the the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period. And they used to say years ago when Hal Lindsey wrote some books, it was like five to to midnight. I think it's like 30 seconds. I think things are coming right along. And at any time we could hear that trumpet sound and the Lord will call his church home. But in the meantime, God determined the exact times and the exact places where we should live. And why did he do that? He did that so we would reach out to him, seek after him, 
and find him. And then the Bible tells us that we were saved in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God has good works for you to do. And so there is a motive, there is a motive that drives us. What drives you? What are you living for? What is your goal in life? No doubt the Bible says a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So you're a wise person. Don't save the money for your kids. Save the money for the grandkids. By the time 40 years goes by, you'll have 40 years of compounding interest. So if you start when your kids are 20, and they are, when your kids are born and they get to be 20, and they have kids, and by the time their kids become 20, that's 40 years of compounding interest. Your kids won't have to pay for college or your grandkids won't have to pay for college, then your kids don't have to save for their kids. They can save for their grandkids. The hard part is somebody's got to start it. Somebody's got to have a vision to do it. And so, yes, money's important. We need it. But it's not the most important. God's work is the most important. God's work is where we get the most significance. God's work is where we find joy and fulfillment in life. So we have a vision. 500,000 people we want to reach in three years in 40 cities around us. Now, we can't save anybody, but we can get the gospel to them. And so we have a mission a mission that drives us. We want the whole church buying into our vision. I like, uh, probably Acts 13 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts. And it's probably verse 36. I think, I think there's a whole sermon in verse 36. When I first got saved, it took me three years to get into the book of Romans. But I did get into the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 36, oh, just, just got my heart. David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. I think the King James Version said, when David had served God's purposes in his generation, he died. Wow, that's what, I want to, that's what I want God to say about me. Bob served my purposes in his generation, and then he died. Now, I know I'm a little procrastinator, and sometimes it takes long. God's going to have to wait a little bit to kill me because I haven't gotten it all done yet. And so I might live a little extra long for that, but I'm not finishing all the work on time. So David served God's purposes in his generation, and he died. You know, John chapter 17, in verse 4, it says, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What's the work God gave you to do? 
Do you know? Do you know what it is? It's not just Pastor Ryan. It's just not, not just uh, a pastors and staff people. No, what has God called you to do? What's the work God has called you to do? You know what? We shouldn't have to tell you what to do. We shouldn't, you should come to us and say, here's what God has called me to. And we should try to help you fulfill the work that God called you to do. But you have to be worshiping. You have to be fasting. You have to be seeking the Lord. You've got to be knowing what God's purposes are for you. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wow. Wouldn't it be great to say that when you're done? Well done, good and faithful servant. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I completed the course. I've kept that faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I want all those crowns, and I want to give them back to Jesus. Don't you want crowns? My wife said if I don't behave, she's going to crown me. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that means. But... Acts 13, verse 25. Now, he starts going through, he, he has a sermon. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, in his sermon, uh, he starts going through different names of people. So we have to be the right person. We have to have the right message. We have the right message. We have the message of eternal life. We have the message of hope and forgiveness. We have the message. We have a right message. In Acts chapter 17, in verse 5, it says, The Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, bringing them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. They have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they were all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so we have the right message. But you know what? It takes a team. There's no I in team. How do you spell team? T-E-A-M. You know, you didn't know you were going to get a geography lesson, a football lesson, a uh, spelling lesson here today. Team. T-E-A-M. There's no I in team. T-E-A-M. We all have to be on a team. And that's why God starts local churches all over the world. There are local churches all over the world. And the average local church is 100 people. God has blessed us. We've been more than that. But God pulls together teams. 
How many in here golf? So I don't see too many women golfers. Is that one back there? I can't see back that part. Yeah. Did you know that uh, the, you know what par is? Par is what you should shoot in uh, 18 holes. And when you get the scorecard, it'll normally say like um, 72 or 71 or so. And, but did you know, that means, uh, let's see, do your math. How many shots per hole? The average golfer shoots over 100. Par would be 72 or so. But the average golfer shoots over 100 or about 100. Now, some of that just might be natural talent. Some of that uh, uh, just might be we're recreational golfers. When I started golfing, I invested in grassy companies. All my divots. Did you know that there are about 100 detailed biographies in the Bible? 100 detailed biographies. But out of those 100 detailed biographies, only 30 of them end up well. 30% of the 100 biographies end well. It takes commitment. It takes work. It takes determination. It takes a spiritual person. And yet we have a mission that directs us. We have the greatest mission in the world. The greatest mission in the world. Now, where's your favorite place you'd ever like to live or visit? Vacation. Where would you like to go? Where? Italy. Oh, Italy. I hear Italy's great. It's like the second or the first place to travel out of everywhere is Italy. I don't know if that's true or not. Did you ever think of going to Paphos? <laughs> not Patmos. Patmos is where John was, was uh, quarantined to, to send to. But I would love to go to Paphos. I think I got some pictures here. Pictures of Paphos. Let's see. Look at that place. You know, one of the best beaches in the world is St. John's Island. They have some of the best beaches. My wife and I wanted to go camping on the, on the island of St. John's. But look at Paphos. Is there another one? Is there another picture? Whoa. How about another one? Oh, look at that. Look at that water. Look at how clean it is. Look at those beaches. Oh, man. Beautiful mountains. You can have beaches. You can have mountains. What else do we got there? Oh, the ruins. Oh, with the water in the background. How beautiful is that? What else? Anything? (laughs) 
So that would kind of be like the Hawaii of the day. And I've been to Hawaii a couple times, and Hawaii's gorgeous. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I were in Hawaii, we went to church, and uh, the pastor of the church was retiring. It was his last Sunday. And uh, I said, I'll take that job. <laughs> the parsonage overlooked the ocean. It was up on the mountain, up on the hill, and overlooked the, the ocean. And I thought, man, this place is gorgeous. This place is beautiful. That is where Paul and his friends were, were missionaries to. They were serving there. They first went there. Wow, I could feel called by God there. Somebody's got to reach those caddies or those uh, golfers. Somebody's got to do it. And that's where Paul, a beautiful place, that's where Paul and, and his, his associates went. And yet, he left there to go to Pisidia, or to Antioch in Pisidia. Verse, uh, let's go, uh, let's go to, whoops, not there. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 4. They being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. That's Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, and, and we see the story of Paul's first missionary journey. But notice in verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the whole book of Acts. It's not Cyprus. It's not Pathos. Pathos. It's where does the Holy Spirit want us? The first question you should always ask God as you're worshiping, as you're fasting, as you're filled with the Spirit, Lord, where do you want me to be? We have a hard time finding people to come to Chicago because mostly because the wives don't want to move to Chicago. Yeah, they would rather, we'd rather move to Hawaii. Or maybe at least somewhere may not be so dangerous. But Paul left Cyprus, and in verse 13, Paul and his companions sent sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's like mountain region. That's like now off the coast. That's like climbing up into the mountains. Paul was sick at the time. He might have had malaria, and he said, hey, it's not the place where we go. It's where God wants us to go. I think you should, if you're moving somewhere, you should always find the church that God wants you to be at, then find the house. You're leaving somewhere. Where does God want you? 
You know, in, in that whole area, Antioch and Pisidia, there were uh, uh, thieves, there were uh, bandits. Uh, this was not an easy place to minister. But it's the mission that directs us. Are we determining our place of habitation, our church of service, by God's mission? Where does God's mission fit into our life? Do we want that, first of all? Because God's Spirit will lead you. God's Spirit will lead you. Philippians 2, verse 13. I don't even know if we have these verses up there or not. Philippians 13. It is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But you have to be worshiping. You have to be fasting. You have to be sincere. You have, you have to be serving God and committed to God and wanting his message. You want to be the person God wants you to be. And God's spirit will work in you. He is not the author of confusion. But God's grace will sustain you. Whatever difficulty there is, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says, For by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So God's Spirit works in us. God's grace sustains us. God's power enables us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul taking a little moment of boasting. And he feels a little weird doing that. He said, to my shame, I must say we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dared to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness. Wow, how about that for a resume? How about that for a position description? That's certainly not Cyprus. Man, that's hard. Christian work is hard. Missionary work is hard. Living for God is hard. But it's worth it. Somebody said Paul's missionary qualifications read like the diary of an Auschwitz survivor. Imprisonments on false charges, flogging, starvation, shipwrecked, hard labor, robbed, sleepless nights, all things that portray him as a weak man. Why? Because as Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians in chapter 12, he was called to suffer as a pastor because the gospel's work moves forward and the church gets built on the tracks of suffering. 
which demonstrates God's power working through the conduit of a human frailty. When I am tempted to throw a pity party over some trifling anguish I'm facing into ministry, I go to Paul's account here to put it in perspective. I will never suffer this way for Christ. Compared to this, all is well. But as a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm called to suffer. Wow. You don't get too many people signing up for that position. A.W. Tozer, my favorite author next to the Bible. A.W. Tozer, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Are you willing to be hurt by God? Are you willing to be marked by God? Are you willing to be trained by God? Are you willing to become the man or woman God wants you to be, even if it means suffering? The church father Athanasius was exiled five times on accusations of heresy. Dozens of early believers were burned at the stake or fed to lions. John Calvin lived much of his life under the threat of death from the Roman Catholic Church. Puritan pastor John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress during a 12-year imprisonment for preaching the gospel. Charles Spurgeon lived in a constant physical pain and suffered profound anxiety for boldly upholding God's word in the face of rising liberalism in the 19th century. But we also have a message that defines us. And with this, I'll try to wrap up. You know, as Paul begins to preach in the book of Acts, uh, he gets an invitation. And uh, they said to him, if you have a message, let's see, verse, uh, verse um, 15 the end of 15. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. I want this message to be encouraging today. But Paul was doing the right thing. He went to he went to the synagogue on Sunday was the custom. He went to that synagogue and while he was in the synagogue, they asked him to speak. You see, God's at work around you. God will open the doors. God will open the opportunities. Are you ready to step in? Are you ready when the Spirit leads? Are you ready to speak? And you know an interesting part of this passage? When Paul started his message, it took him eight sentences to get to Jesus. Now, I don't know if that's exactly how the message went or if it was condensed, but in our text, it took Paul eight sentences to get to Jesus. You know, sometimes we beat around the bush so long, we never get to the point. Sometimes we're afraid of offending somebody and we never get to it. Sometimes we got to just get at it. Sometimes we got to just jump in. Sometimes we just got to get out there. We just got to say the word. We just got to get into the, into the fight. Now, I do think it means being led by the Spirit. The Spirit needs to be leading. But Paul, his typical way of preaching was to give an overview of what God did in history. 
He went through the, the uh, let's see, who did he get through here? Um, the God of the people Israel chose our fathers. Uh, verse 18, for 40 years he put up with them. Wow, I wonder sometimes, God, are you just putting up with me? Uh, after, he, after destroying seven nations, he just goes through a litany in eight sentences. Uh, it, it even took 450 years. God's not in a hurry. God has been working in the person that he brings you into contact with, and at the right time, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, God will use you. He removed him. He raised up David. David, that man who I have found, David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And at this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. You know, this is the first time in the book of Acts, one of the only times that Paul says Jesus is the Savior. He raised up Jesus, the Savior, Jesus. So what did he do? What is our message? Our message is that Jesus died. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from sleep, no, he raised him from the dead. Jesus died. This is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Proof that he was dead, they buried him. And that he was raised. That he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. Because Jesus wasn't going to be corrupted. He was, he was not staying in that tomb. But he offers forgiveness. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you want to have your sins forgiven? You don't earn forgiveness. You surrender to forgive. You surrender to Jesus. He is the one that forgives sins. He died. He was buried. He rose. He was seen. And he, he forgives sins. It is through this man, not by you earning it, not by getting baptized, not by going to church, not sitting under this sermon, not working for God, you're forgiven through Jesus Christ. But notice he also offers freedom. Everyone who believes is freed. You were a slave, a captive to sin. But when Jesus died on that cross and, and was risen from the dead, says he forgives us of all of our sins. How, many, how much is all? Yeah, all means all. That's all all means. All. Sins past, present, future. Isn't that incredible? He forgives you all those sins and he frees you. He disarms the principalities and powers that were against us and he sets us free. I used to have to sin because I, I sinned because I was a sinner. 
But he disarmed those principalities and powers that were against us. And he set us free. Now I am free to live for Christ. I have no excuse anymore. I can't say, well, I'm only human. No, I'm more than a conqueror. He has set me free. He gives me his spirit. He seals me until the day of redemption. And he sets me free to obey him and to follow him and to work for him and to live for him and to enjoy him. All the benefits of believing. Let me close with this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudity, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am lifted up by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the, serp- in the face of sacrifice, Hesitate in the presence of the adversary. Negotiate at the table of the enemy. Pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Where do you stand? Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul. He was sold on serving you. But more important than the Apostle Paul is our Savior, Jesus. He died for our sins, all of them. He was raised for our justification. He offers forgiveness, He offers freedom. 
Father, speak to the heart of each one here today if they've not received your forgiveness. May today be the day. I said a little prayer, something like this, some years ago. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. I believe Jesus died on the cross rose from the tomb. I receive you as my Savior. And I will serve you with all my heart as you give me the grace to do it. Lord, would you raise up laborers? Will you raise up disciples? Will you raise up committed men and women, boys and girls that care not what this world has to offer but want to live for you? Lord, thank you for the vision you've given to us. That's the normal Christian life. And maybe you will call us to Hawaii most likely not. You've called us right now at this time in history, right here in the Chicagoland area. A cesspool of sin and violence. Immorality. Worldly living. And you've called us to be a light to be salt in an unsalty world. We ask, oh God, that we would resist the devil, that we wouldn't love the world. We would flee youthful lusts, that we would serve your purposes in our generation, and then we can die. Lord, build up an army here. We know it's not numbers. Start with us, Lord. Start with me. I want to be one of those. I'm signing the line, the bottom of the page, and I'll leave you to fill in all the details. Pray for our pastor while he's gone with his daughter. Pray for Pastor Stephen and Nikki. Pray for the baby who's coming. Pray for our staff. Pray for our church, Lord. We pray for each one in, in each chair right now that you would speak to them, show them the work that you've called them to do, Lord. Empower them. May your grace sustain them. Help us to make that commitment today as we sit in these chairs that we want to run that race you've marked out for us. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's stand.